Welcome to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This is a very special episode this week um, because we have multiple hosts. I am your host, Jordan Porter, followed by the wonderful Yvonne Brandenburg. And then like, drum roll, please. Hold on. I'll do it. I'll do it. Yeah. (laughs) And then also joined by the amazing Laura Rosewell. Hey. I'm not going to say all of your initials. We We have a bonus episode if you guys would like to go listen to that. um, That talks all about who Laura is and all the amazing things she does and explains all the amazing initials that she has that she cannot fit on her scrub top. And (laughs) why we have her on our podcast episode because she's just brilliant and amazing. And um, we met last year. Yeah, we just studied together virtually. Yeah for a while yeah slightly scary but fun (laughs) there was a lot of like comments of like help we're scared (laughs) what do we we don't know what we're doing (laughs) and if you guys don't know what they're talking about they're talking about they got their vts and small animal internal medicine together because because they rock but that was last year that was last year (laughs) this year we are very much doing very very similar things but um different and you're like you're killing it i love all the stuff that you do so and then you're helping us do this week's episode on the the dreaded cat flute um which i'm so happy you took this topic because i don't i'm not a fan of this Uh, i don't mind i'm a crazy cat lady at heart i'm quite happy to take (laughs) flute it's not a problem (laughs) i was yeah fluted i'm like i feel like most fluted cats that come into the clinic it's hard because unless you find like a underlying disease, they can be super frustrating. Yeah. But they're super rewarding when you can fix it. I have one cat in particular that I remember, um, like he came in for a PU with the surgery department and the dad was like, I really don't want to do surgery if we can help it. And like, he, so they were like, they just like asked us if we would help. And that cat's been, I think it's been like four years. Oh, wow. It's just on meds and the cat's been great. Not that's amazing i swear he'll, he'll probably oh, come back in like, <laughs> yeah. yeah don't tempt that one yeah <laughs> so anyway laura is taking over our episode this week so she will be talking all about the fluted and all of the things involved in encompassing that and so we are so 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 happy to have you with us <laughs> no pressure um, <laughs> you're fine you're you, right okay. just if you don't Win know it. who Laura is, she does veterinary internal medicine nursing, and we share her stuff all the time. So she'll be fine, you guys. <laughs> It'll be great. We're we're, gonna, we're excited to have her with us, so we can all dork out together. Thanks, guys. I'm super excited as well because when I did the research for this episode, I found that two of the textbooks that I used for most of the information, the chapters on fluted were written by my good friend, who's the feline medicine specialist who did my application with me. And she wrote the oh chapters. So I was How super cool excited. Yeah, she's yeah. a like she's an amazing cat vet. So yeah, it was, that was my little name? geek out moment. Um, Sam Taylor. 
Sam Taylor. Yeah, she oh, looks after my cat with his ruined urinary tract. So, uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> we'll have to put the, the links to her textbooks then um, in, the, in our show notes for you. Yeah, that'd be cool. So anyway, yeah, that was my little dorky moment when I realized that. So. <laughs> cool. I love when that happens. You're like, I know that person. Yeah, so cool. Cool. Okay, so this week we're going to be looking at fluted. <laughs> so feline lower urinary tract disease. So this isn't actually a disease itself, but it's kind of an umbrella term which encompasses several different diseases which all affect the lower urinary tract in cats. Um, So there's several different causes and we'll list them out now from most common to least common. So the most common is actually a condition called feline idiopathic cystitis or FIC, which is similar to interstitial cystitis in humans. Then urolithiasis, followed by other kind of non-stone causes of obstruction. So this would be like urethral spasm or the presence of a mucus plug. Then bacterial cystitis, then anatomical abnormalities. So things like urethral strictures, followed by neoplasia. And then the least common is more of the kind of primary behavioral um, disorders causing the urinary tract issues. So... I'm not going to focus on all of those because there's seven of them, but um, mainly this episode will look at FIC because that is the most common cause. I have put a bit also in there about urolithiasis, but hopefully not too much because that obviously crosses over with your strangurea episode a little bit. So looking at... I think there's a lot of crossover. I mean, anytime you're talking about urinary tract stuff, right? There's so much crossover and um, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully... I know. Hopefully it won't cross over too much. I did try and keep it very like capstone specific, but there'll be more information in your uh, in your Strangeria episode. I, I knew that you would definitely like kind of focus on like the capstone stuff. So I did not put a lot of that stuff in <laughs> my episode. I listened I to like, your episode like three times to make sure. Must check. <laughs> so yeah. No, but I but there is a lot of crossover. I think, and so you know, talking about it multiple times is fine. We're cool. fine. I'm sure everybody's like, what was that again? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so feline idiopathic cystitis is an inflammatory disease of the lower urinary tract, which doesn't have any kind of obvious underlying cause. It accounts for about two thirds of all fluted cases, and these cats can present either with obstructions or as a non obstructive disease. We don't know the exact cause because it is an idiopathic condition, but there have been studies that have been done that have looked at anatomical kind of similarities between different cats with FIC. And they have found that they do have a few key things in common. So FIC cats generally will have an inappropriate sympathetic nervous system response to stress. So they won't have like an appropriate stress response. And that generally, uh, one of the things that's been hypothesized is like early years kind of trauma slash kind of in utero stress. Um, I didn't look too much oh, into that way over my head, but there's some good things <laughs> by a guy called Tony Buffington, I think, looking at those in like crazy detail. So they yeah, don't that's super interesting. I mean, I guess that kind of makes sense too. Cause like, I, I don't know if you guys have, um, if you have like feel away spray, the mm-hmm. hormone spray. Yeah. So I would guess like if, if you have a cat that has that inappropriate hormonal response thing, I would think maybe feel away would be a great tool yeah. for those Super helpful. or, or it's the opposite where it doesn't work at all on them. 
it's one of one or the other i would guess but <laughs> i mean it makes sense when you think about it but that's mm. kind of crazy yeah it's weird so there's that and then the other thing is they have um, abnormalities to the neurons that supply the bladder so these guys get neurogenic inflammation so they get a lot of kind of abnormal activation of the chronic pain fibers in their peripheral nervous system mm. um causing bladder inflammation so rather than it being an immune challenge it's activation of the nerve fibers without there being any kind of immune mediated re reason for that inflammation that sounds horrible yeah it doesn't sound fun huh and um and then in addition to that they also have depletion of a protective lining in the bladder um which we'll look at a little bit in more detail when we talk about kind of anatomy but they essentially have like a protective layer which protects the bladder mucosa from the harmful components within urine and mm. these cats have a depletion of that layer which then means that inflammation can kind of get through and attack the bladder layers more so wow. not fun so the net result of all of that is essentially there are there is abnormal interactions between the brain and the bladder in these cats which means that we can say there are certain cats who have these abnormalities who will be more prone to developing fic if there is a stressful trigger so then either an acute or, or chronic stressful trigger can then cause that fic episode to come out in these at-risk cats so then from that, there are a number of different risk factors which have been identified in increasing the risk of FIC developing further. So generally, FIC cats will have an inactive lifestyle with limited or no outdoor access. So I thought this was interesting because I don't know about you guys, but in the UK, a lot of our cats will routinely have outdoor access. Like it's quite rare to have an indoor only cat, whereas I think in some areas in the States, cats having kind of only indoor access is more common depending on how oh, big yeah. the area is yeah yeah, yeah say, depending on how popular it is we mm -hmm. try the majority of my patients are definitely indoor only mm -hmm. i think because of um, the studies that have shown just like longevity yeah whereas like outdoor cats you know they get like the hit by car and the mm. we have a lot of animals that will uh, maybe pick up a cat out of the yard and fly away. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. um, Fair enough. We also People have like that. alligators and yeah, oh, yeah, alligators and eagles and stuff like that. So I'm okay. just like, we have, have a lot raccoons. of. No, no, no. We have we've there was like short story. Um, <laughs> there was a boarding <laughs> facility next to a clinic that I used to work at and they had like there's like a little tiny Yorkie outside and it got picked up by an eagle and like Whoa. taken away shut oh my up at the boarding facility yeah yeah and there's people outside like with the dog so it wasn't like unaccompanied like they did nothing wrong it was just one of those things that like just Whoa. happened so and that's happened where like people will be like my dog is missing out of my fenced in backyard and we're like it's like this tiny little four pound thing it got picked up and flew away Oh my God. <laughs> wow. because we have eagles and hawks and all that stuff that like yeah okay right so take this thing that we, we just have like foxes which will occasionally stress out a cat and that's about it so yeah, okay. yeah no fine so indoor access <laughs> is a big risk factor <laughs> yes yes i was like on my side of the 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 states because i'm on the other side um hit by a car like we see a ton of that and then just um the infectious disease stuff so yeah. like FELV, yeah. um uh, i feel like those are the big things that we worry about with them um, yeah we have we have a lot of just 
Yeah, that, we we have that too. And then, like I said, there's like creatures, like coyotes <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't have nearly that. Um, no, I have raccoons that are a problem. But like, if we if we went up to North Carolina, we have bears. Dog. Like, it's yeah, it's. Wow. <laughs> I'm with Laura. I'm like, we have like oh nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we um. Anyway, so a lot of our cats seem to be at risk for fluted or FIC <laughs> <laughs> because they're indoor only. Indoor only. There you go. So other risk factors include uh, cats having a low water intake because these guys will have more concentrated urine as well as obesity, having to use a litter tray indoors um, and then whether there are acute stresses in the house. So this would be things like a house move, building work or renovations in the home or like a new baby or a new animal. And then chronic stresses. So this would generally be a lot of our cats who are in multi-cat households. So if there is conflict between the two cats, which can be really subtle, and I find a lot of um, our clients don't necessarily pick that up and they think their cat's got on really well, but actually if you look at it, there's a lot of really subtle um, changes that you pick up on, like guarding um, resources in the house, limiting access to them and things like that. So it's not just obvious fighting. Um, And also conflict with cats or other animals outside of the household. So we actually sent a patient home with um, FIC who was unblocked two days ago from here and they just had a litter of fox cubs basically born in their back garden who had like grown up and there's just like these foxes running around everywhere and now then the cat came and blocked um as a result essentially of that stress so yeah hashtag jealous though I would love some foxes (laughs) in my backyard (laughs) like if you're like sorry cat like it's pretty cool (laughs) that's crazy yeah and and I think I think one of the hard things is because people don't understand cat behavior. Mm-hmm. I think it's really hard for them to understand it. So, um, I don't know. Do you guys follow, um, I think her name is Tabitha. She does the cat behavior stuff. I think it's, oh, is it trips and chatter? Have you guys seen that? I no. haven't. I'll have to check that out though. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll see if I can find it and, and we can put her in the notes. Yeah. Too. She, um, I think she's studying to get her VTS in behavior, oh, which amazing. is amazing. Um, yeah. Or she just got it, one or the other. I can't remember which. But her stuff is amazing, and she does a lot of like educational stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So we we should definitely link to it because it that is it is very different um, ways of dealing with cat behavior than dog yeah. behavior. Like cats sure. are not small dogs, nope. <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> whatever (laughs) (laughs) there's a reason why i'm so happy laura took this episode i'm just like cats and fluted and stuff like that is not my thing oh i love stuff like this you're fine i know well i mean like you get the mixture of like medicine and behavior and i'm Mm. like it's i it's not me and i cats i just (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny because I have definitely become the cat person on this mm-hmm. podcast, which cracks me up because I used to not be a cat person, but um, I love them and they're, I mean, they're ridiculous and you may have heard mine just now being all crazy, but um, I, yeah, the cat stuff, like I did have a cat with some, uh, I don't know if I'd call him fluted, but he thought about being fluted <laughs> many times <laughs> in his life um, and yeah. And it's always super frustrating for clients because they don't understand the, all like the they little have to, triggers cats yeah, can have. <laughs> yeah. 
And you have to like ask a lot of questions, like anything new yeah. in your house? Like, did you move a piece of furniture? Like, it's just cats. Yeah, know? just cats. Exactly. <laughs> you have to go into like crazy specific detail because cats like to do weird stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So in terms of urolithiasis, which is the next most common cause, this is the presence of stones within the urinary tract. And you guys have already done a whole episode on Stranguria. So make sure you guys check that one out if you haven't listened to that one already. Um, they can also affect the upper urinary tract, as I found out when my cat decided to get three stones in his ureter. But uh, yes, the most common stones that we see in cats are struvite and calcium oxalate, but then we can have other specific stones in cats that have certain underlying diseases. So for example, if you've got a cat with a portosystemic systemic shunt, then you will see ammonium biurate um, crystals. Uh, you can also get calcium phosphate uroliths in hypercalcemic cats. So around 50% of all feline uroliths are struvite. Um, in most cases, so in 95% of cases in cats, these are sterile, so they're not associated with any kind of urinary tract infection. But there are a number of factors which can increase the risk for their formation. So urine pH is a big one, and struvite forms in alkaline urine. Also different dietary factors, so diets that are high in the minerals which our struvite crystals are composed of so things like magnesium and phosphorus also sodium calcium and chloride and also higher fiber diets i found as well in one study um, have increased risk for struvite crystal formation and also proteinuria can promote struvite crystallization and less commonly infection this occurs in about five percent of cases and this is especially infection with urease producing bacteria so things like staphylococcus and proteus species because the urease makes the urine more alkaline which then increases the risk for struvite to form that's so crazy i know we talked about um what was it the nidus the mm. yeah yeah like the center of the stones and stuff like that yeah i know we talked about how like cats can definitely have those struvite stones that are not related to a uti versus dogs get them related to a UTI usually. Um, and yeah, how it can be composed of, like the nidus can, can be composed of like something completely different than the yeah. rest of the stone. The stone. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think too, like with the, 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 the diet factors, I think this is one of those reasons where, or one of the reasons why you, you prefer to go with like a higher quality cat food mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you're going to have a more balanced approach to some of this stuff versus you know like the fast food diets that that some of these cats get that I won't name names because I don't I don't want to you know but we all know what we're talking about those uh, diets do have a place somewhere but oh, for <laughs> not sure. for these patients but, but not <laughs> yeah especially not for a patient that's that's got issues with their urinary tract for sure or kidneys no cool so uh with calcium oxalate uroliths the factors that are actually involved in the formation of these stones are not completely understood but generally the urine will be super saturated with calcium and oxalate so the components of the crystals this can occur due to a number of different reasons so hypercalcemia also if there's increased oxalate in the diet um, and then also decreased concentrations of certain components in the body which are calcium oxalate inhibitors so these include citrate and magnesium also I didn't diet know there was a calcium oxalate inhibitor 
that's that's mind blowing. That's pretty interesting though, because I bet you, like, if you think about, like, so if you're you have a patient who has low magnesium, they usually in turn have like low potassium too. Mm -hmm. But it'd be interesting to see if a lot of those patients, like, I guess that would be like some of our diabetic patients would have like low magnesium. And so I wonder if they would be more prone to getting, I mean, they're more prone to getting UTIs, but like if they'd be more prone to developing calcium oxalate crystals, that's like, yeah, it's kind of interesting because I know like when I think of like the blood work that I run in house, like Mm -hmm. magnesium isn't included in like my panel, like in any time we want to check magnesium, we have to do like an add on. Yeah, like it's not very common, but I guess the when we check a magnesium level is when we can't fix a potassium level. Right. But it'd be like, interesting. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's low yeah. on magnesium. Maybe. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if when if we I'll have to go back and look and see like if we check a because we check urines all the time, but I guess I don't look to see if like I know that they don't have a stone, then I don't look to see if they have crystals. <laughs> like, yeah. Be interesting. Hmm. Hmm. And us learning in this episode. Thanks, Laura. No, you're very <laughs> um, So dietary factors uh, can also play a role in these patients. And I thought this was really interesting when I had a look um, at this, because I found one study which looked at the prevalence of calcium oxalate stones at Minnesota Urolith Center. And essentially over the last 30 something years from like 1981, I think it said, the frequency has increased from about 10% of their stones being calcium oxalate up to 41%. And they hypothesized in that study that it was potentially could be in part due to the increased availability or increased use of urine acidifying diets. So that's crazy. They did find in, it was also mentioned in that paper that something about if, if the diet promoted a urine pH of less than 6.2, the patient was three times more likely to get calcium oxalate crystals than if the pH was like 6.5 to 6.9. So like a really tiny drop in pH really increased their risk of getting calcium oxalate. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to see some of these things, and especially when you have studies and you're like, Oh, Oh, <laughs> yes. It fixed this one problem, but now we have this problem. Yeah. No, of course it's this. <laughs> yeah. So I guess following on from that, it makes sense to say that calcium oxalate crystals are seen more commonly in acidic urine. Um, And also they are commonly seen in cats with chronic kidney disease in the kidney. So these patients can present with calcium oxalate nephrolis. So then looking at anatomy and physiology, I'm not going to cover this in loads of detail because you have a whole episode dedicated to that, <laughs> episode 38, but I did want to touch why on... why we do that. Yeah. <laughs> a little easier. Exactly. So I did want to touch on a little bit about the urethra and the urinary bladder as these are the structures affected in these guys. So the urinary bladder is divided into three main regions. So these are the apex, the body and the neck of the bladder. And then the wall of the bladder is divided into different layers. So the bladder has a muscle layer on the outside. Uh, In the bladder, it is called the detrusor muscle, and this allows voiding, so it allows the bladder to actually empty. Then in the middle, you have a submucosal layer, which is formed of connective tissue, and then an inner mucosal layer, which is lined with urethelium. So these are the transitional epithelial cells, and these stretch, as we know, as the bladder fills with urine. And then on the inside of the bladder between the lumen and the urethelial layer 
you have the glycosaminoglycanol gag layer. So this covers the bladder wall and it's that protective layer that we spoke about earlier. So this essentially is made up of like glucosamine, hyaluronic acid, all of those kind of building blocks get secreted to form this matrix which protects the bladder. It basically does two things. It prevents bacteria from actually adhesing to the bladder wall. And it also helps to prevent the urine from damaging the urothelial layer and causing inflammation of the bladder when it's full with urine. Is this, is this, uh, well, I'm trying to think of, is, you said it's a matrix. So is it, um, I'm thinking like all I can think of is like saliva and mucus or is it more like cellular? I think for, for the information that I looked at, it didn't kind of say that it was cellular, but it was, it was like this substance like that cup, kind of was like secreted to cover okay. the bladder mucosa. If that, that makes, makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So that is, um, that lies directly between the lumen of the bladder and the um, mucosal layer. And then you have sensory neurons which supply the bladder. So that is when we're going to start to see the activation of those kind of C fibers and the inflammation and kind of pain sensation in these patients. So then the urethra has a, a penile and a pelvic compartment in male cats. And then the pelvic compartment is divided into pre peri and post prostatic regions based on how close it is to the prostate. And its function is controlled by two muscles. So the uh, bladder neck and the cranial urethra is uh, supplied by the internal urethral sphincter. So this is a smooth muscle uh, and the responsibility of this is to create essentially like tone and resistance. And then the external urethral sphincter is a muscle which encircles the outside of the caudal urethra. And this is skeletal muscle. And this is responsible for continence, essentially. So this is really important when you think about if we're, if we're prescribing like muscle relaxant agents to these guys, because some of them will deal with smooth muscle and some of them will deal with skeletal muscle. So they're going to affect different parts of the urethra. That's interesting, because I think of... Um... Oh, what is the drug that we usually send home for relaxing sphincters? Prazosin? Prazosin. Yeah, prazosin. So that makes sense that you've got the, the sphincter muscles. And I'm guessing that prazosin probably works more on the smooth muscle. Yeah, I think that one works more on smooth muscle when I remember researching this at one point. I was going to say, because it talks about tone and resistance, which is what I think mm -hmm. of with, with prazosin. So uh, then in terms of how these patients are going to present to us, because fluted is a diverse syndrome in it, there are several different diseases. Technically, cats of any age, breed or gender can develop fluted because they can develop one of these seven conditions. But normally we see this disease more commonly in neutered cats, inactive or overweight cats, indoor cats and those who are exclusively being fed dry food. Uh, male cats are more likely to develop feline idiopathic cystitis and also calcium oxalate uroliths, but female cats are more likely to develop strubite uroliths. And then in terms of age, uh, things like feline idiopathic cystitis are normally seen in young to middle-aged cats, but things like UTIs and neoplasia are going to be seen in our older cats. So crazy. Cause like I can picture all of our patients and I'm like, yup, 
Yep. Yeah. That, that, yep. Yeah. They just fit nicely into the, uh, into those boxes. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're like, Oh yeah, I definitely see that in clinic. Cool. Cool. Then in terms of clinical signs, these guys will all present generally with the same clinical signs, regardless of the disease process, because they are all affecting the same structures. So we can see dysuria, so difficult or painful urination, polyuria potentially, which is increased frequency of urination, inappropriate urination in other areas of the home outside of the litter tray, hematuria and stranguria, uh, if they are obstructed. Also with FIC cats particularly, because stress plays such a big role in these patients, we can also see stress-associated signs to other body systems. So things like behavioral abnormalities, also gastrointestinal signs and dermatological signs in these patients too. Yeah. I, I, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to, I, I think of all those cats that come in through our emergency clinic and I'm like, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of stuff going on usually, which mm-hmm. is sad. Yeah. But hopefully that means if there's such a big stress component, if we make changes at home, hopefully they will do better on that. Well, and I think it, it, figuring out sometimes what it is that stresses them out is is difficult, right? You know, is it the litter boxes, it got moved near a door and now the cat is freaked out because the door, you know, it's yeah. not looking at the outside or what, <laughs> yes, trying yeah. to understand your cat when you can't ask them questions is difficult sometimes. Absolutely. So I feel like this just plays in with what you guys say in every episode, but collecting a thorough history this is, is why we vital every episode. <laughs> in these patients and really us as technicians and nurses are ideally placed to do this because there is a big behavioral focus as well as a clinical focus in these patients. So we need to make sure that we are asking questions about the home environment and the cat's normal lifestyle, as well as general questioning about things like their urination and other systemic signs. It's also really important that we get the patient's signalment because, as we've said, things like age and gender will give us an idea of what exact disease is going on. So these help us to rule out things like bacterial cystitis in a younger patient is less likely than something like FIC, for example. So really, we want to be asking our clients questions about the urination. So looking at things like when did we actually last see that patient urinate? So have we got a blocked bladder that we need to think about? What did the urine look like? Where was it in the home? So is there an inappropriate urination going on? Is the patient straining? Do they have unproductive trips to the litter tray? Do they seem painful? We also need These questions sometimes are so difficult. Yeah. I'm like, how do you, you never see your cat urinate? Like, I I don't, they're like, oh yeah. Um, I, I, I go, okay. So apparently nothing's wrong. Um, (laughs) I mean, I could see that. My parents' cat's litter box is literally like in their bedroom closet. And like, I can't imagine that. And he does go outside sometimes. I will say, here's another thing too. We did have (laughs) a client who called and and the cat came in multiple times and he was like inappropriate urination, like throughout the house. And someone finally asked, you know, well, how many litter boxes do you have? Because some, you know, the whole adage Mm -hmm. of how many cats you have plus plus one litter um, if, you know, hopefully that's possible. Right. And, and the person said, well, I don't have one in the house. Well, that'll be why. <laughs> and we were like, oh, well you might want to add one. Like yeah. that seems like, and, and 
oddly enough, that fixed the inappropriate urination in the house. I was like, wow, cool. So it's Easy a really fix. good idea to ask all the questions. Yeah. <laughs> and we also want to be asking about the chronicity of the condition because things like FIC are normally short uh, repeated episodes of clinical signs. So we want to know when the signs started, are they persistent or are they in short episodes? And also, is this the first episode the patient's had or is this a recurrence of a pre-existing condition? We also want to ask about kind of our general questioning. So things like food intake, the patient's dietary history, any other signs, concurrent diseases, medications, also things like water intake and asking about their general demeanor. I think too, um, the whole vomiting, diarrhea, constipation thing. I think sometimes it's really difficult to figure out, you know, are they, are they constipated? Mm -hmm. Like they're trying to go to the bathroom or is it because they're frequently urinating and nothing's coming out? Because I think clients don't always know the difference. No. And then there's the whole like capsule sometimes. um, Cause I asked them to this too, like if they're vomiting, is it, they're in the litter box and then they start vomiting or because that could be that they're trying so hard. Yeah. Like, I don't know if you've seen that where the cats are mm-hmm. trying to go so bad and they make themselves vomit because they're pushing yeah. so hard. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really important for us to ask questions. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's that rabbit hole thing with us, right? If you, yeah. if you find a little piece of information, sometimes you have to tweak your questions a little bit to get more information Absolutely. and then talk to your doctor about it and be like, Oh, I noticed this, this, and this, you might want to ask them other questions too about it. Yeah, for sure. Like my cat, when he was obstructed, vomiting was the first sign we saw. And it was associated with him trying to pass a stone through his ureter. And we thought it was either pain or the physical, like, so yeah, they hypothesized pain yeah. essentially from having a transient ureteral obstruction, but his only sign was vomiting. I thought he'd eaten something. I took him in for an X lap and then we did sub. Uh, so yeah, I, I, oh, wow. I could see, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could see how that, I mean, like, cause I had a kidney stone once and like, dude, I was so nauseous, like other than like pain and nauseousness, like there was zero sign of like, mm-hmm. just, I was like did my appendix burst in my back? I was like, this is like, it was, it was intense. So I could see that. You're poor kitty. Oh no. I wish we could ask them, where does it hurt? I know. Right. (laughs) Yeah. For now, knock on wood. Yeah. Yeah, Right. You're probably like the master at managing, like making sure it doesn't ever occur again. Just because it's all been surgically corrected by this point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Cool. So we also need to ask about behavior. So we need to know what this cat's home life is like. Are they in a multi-cat household? If so, what is the behavior like between the cats in the home? Have there been any acute stressful episodes recently? Like we said earlier, house move, building work, new baby. Also, I find that COVID has probably done our cats a disservice because all of these cats are used to having peace and quiet in the day. And I've seen so many more blocked cats recently. And I swear it's just because they're not used to having people at home and they're all stressed about it. I was going to say, we're seeing it too with like all the kids that are home. Mm -hmm. Because normally the kids are at school and it's quieter during the day versus like these, I feel so bad. I feel bad for Jordan and anyone who has kids because these poor kids are going stir crazy and they're running around the house and cats are just like, what is happening and people are staring at their cats and I'm like stop staring at your cats give them space (laughs) yes (laughs) they sleep all day stop waking them up (laughs) it's fine let them sleep it's all good 
So uh, we also need to ask about things like what the home is like, what resources are available to the cat and whereabouts in the home are they positioned? And also looking at things like how the cat's been interacting with people in the home. Has there been any kind of sudden aggression lately that's unexplained, anything like that? So making sure we're questioning them on our behavioral aspect as well. And then in terms of differentials, because it's such a wide variety of diseases that kind of all fall under the umbrella of fluted, they're, they're all of our differentials basically. So we either need to diagnose one of those definitive conditions or rule all of them out in order to reach a diagnosis of FIC because we can only diagnose that by exclusion. So we are going to be looking for evidence of stones, we are going to be looking for evidence of stricture, mucus plugs, neoplasia, uh, and also things like culturing the urine to determine if we have a urinary tract infection. And if we've ruled out all of those causes, then we are really left with FIC as our remaining diagnosis for these patients. So in terms of the diagnostics that we perform, there are a lot. And the great thing for us as nurses and technicians is that there are a lot of opportunities for us to use our skills with these patients. So things like blood draws, urine analysis, um, cystocentesis, if you are in the US. Uh, in the UK, we are not allowed to perform cysto. I saw when you mentioned that on a, a previous episode, and I was shouting in my car, like, we're not allowed to do it. Um, yeah, so for I, I thought that, because I think we mentioned, I was like, I don't think you're allowed to do it in yeah. the UK, but. No. <laughs> we are technically not allowed to do anything which enters into a body cavity. So abdominocentesis, cystocentesis and thoracocentesis are no-goes for UK nurses. Everything else we can do. Yeah, I'm so, so glad that you mentioned that because we definitely were like, who is it that can't do it? Yeah, it's us. <laughs> yeah, and I'm. I it makes. Sense I wonder if it's the same are... for like Australia though too. Like, yeah, know. yeah. We should ask Tanya. Yeah, Tanya. Yeah, you don't have to Tanya. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya will be our Australia person that we talk to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yeah, then Gemma's got a lot of snow about Canada too. <laughs> exactly, Gemma and Matt. You guys all have to tell us about cystocentesis and in your your Canada. <laughs> Ooh, um, and then also other skills like point of care ultrasound scanning, placing urinary catheters and performing radiography, including contrast studies, can all be performed by technicians and nurses. Even though Jordan hates placing urinary catheters, as Do we you? learned in, um, which episode was that? Two episodes ago? She's very, yeah. she's very adamant about the appropriateness of Oh yeah, I heard, I heard that so well. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy placing them. I just don't like it when they're done for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's like anything, right? Like if you're doing it for no reason, stop it. <laughs> so in terms of the diagnostics that we're going to do with these patients, generally we will do routine bloods with, the, with these guys. There's not too many kind of other blood tests that we will do. So we will just do like a biochemistry, hematology, electrolytes. And sometimes we will do a blood gas. Like if our obstructed patients come in through emergency, we will do a blood gas in them just as part of our minimum database that we do in triage. So do you want really to make we sure want... they're not, what is it? M metabolic acidosis for that? Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 So, but our, our um, minimum database also does like BUN creatinine and electrolytes as well as acid base. So it's, we kind of do it because it will tell us for these guys all about renal function and also if there's any electrolyte abnormalities. 
So for these guys, we really want to assess the renal function, especially in our obstructed patients, because if they've been obstructed for some time, then we really start to worry about post-renal azotemia um, and acute kidney injury and potentially depending on the severity of your AKI and hyperkalemia as well. And also, in addition to assessing our renal function, our biochemistry and hematology is also going to tell us about if there is other systemic diseases present that we also need to consider in these patients. And then we are going to move on to urine analysis. Obviously, this is a huge part of our diagnostics for our lower urinary tract patients. So we will generally do a chemistry, specific gravity, and a microscopy and culture in these guys. Most commonly, we will collect this via cysto because we want to send it away um, for culture. I have put via urinary catheter, but don't worry, Jordan, because it's only in a patient who's obstructed once you have released <laughs> removed the obstruction. So yes, uh, thank you. There you go. For that a is when patient with clotting issues. I'm gonna throw yeah. that one in too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a bad combination here. Thrombocytopenic blocked like oh you don't Ooh. even <sighs> I've never seen one. I need to find Knock something on to touch right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, what I have seen, and it's not thrombocytopenia, but, um, rat bait, we had, we had like a 14 year old golden retriever come in and, um, they thought it was a mass in the bladder, but it was actually just this giant amount of blood. And she like, she was like bleeding into her bladder is how we kind of Mm. figured it out. Um, but my doctor was smart and didn't just assume 14 year old golden retriever with cancer. Mm. (laughs) And so we, we got the sample and she's like, before we do this, let's check clotting times. And then we were like, any chance she could have gotten into rat bait. And they were like, well, actually, and we're like, the 14 year old dog got into rat bait. Like she's a golden retriever. She's supposed to have cancer, (laughs) which she did great once we figured out it was rat bait, but yeah, it was, um, that was also not a cystocentesis moment. Yeah. No. <laughs> and lepto patients, I find as well, because we generally see a lot of thrombocytopenia in our lepto patients. And Interesting. Yeah. Like, we'll want to catheterize them for infection control. I'm like, oh, great. We can't, though. They haven't got any platelets. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited that you're touching on these radiographs because I like very, very, very briefly mentioned it in one of the past episodes about like how you can uh, do like pneumocystograms. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, yeah, you can inject contrast in air, but really it's gas, not air. So I'm going to let you go into the radiographs because I'm super cool. excited because I was like, we should totally do a bonus <laughs> episode on all the different types of radiographs you could do, but you're touching on it. So it's <laughs> like, yay. I know. Yeah. I'm super excited about this. <laughs> I'm not doing it in detail, but basically, we generally do quite a lot of radiography in these patients to exclude other conditions they're also quite helpful to look for radio um, lucent stones as well as radio opaque depending on the contrast method that you're using so we will normally do plain x-rays when we just want to check kind of the shape and size of the bladder although we normally just do a point of care ultrasound for those and to highlight any radio opaque stones so these would be oxalate and struvite But then we can add contrast to look at the bladder in more detail, evaluate the wall thickness and identify radiolucent stones. So we can do this in three different ways, essentially. The first way is just doing a pneumocystogram. So this is just putting gas into the bladder via urinary catheter. I always did this in when I was working in primary care with air. And then when I started working in specialty, 
I was working with a feline specialist and she used to get me to do a trick where you went to like the CO2 canister that was attached to your like lap, lap surgery tower and a sterile glove. And then you like fill it with sterile CO2. And then she used a needle and syringe to aseptically like draw up the carbon dioxide into a syringe and then insert that into the bladder. And apparently from what I read, That's if you amazing. use something. Yeah, I need you cool. to take a video of this and show me how you do this. Yeah, I'll try. You basically, like, you fill a, you make it a balloon, basically. Yeah. So you just inflate a sterile glove with CO2, and then you, like, puncture it and aspirate the gas into your syringe. And apparently, using CO2 rather than air reduces the risk of air embolism through the bladder. I've I've read that. I've only ever done a pneumocystogram like I think once or twice and I used air, but yeah. Then I later read, I was like, oh, (laughs) I was like, but yeah, I was like, where do I get CO2 from? Just blown. I'm like, what? I know. Wow. That's really (laughs) Um, cool. It's cool, huh? Yeah. I guess that makes sense because if you're doing, I don't want to say surgery on a medicine podcast, but if you're doing like laparoscopic surgery, you inflate the abdomen with CO2 rather than air so I guess it's the same principle but yeah that's very cool okay and then our double contrast pneumocystogram is gas and contrast medium uh, generally a smaller volume of contrast medium and then you kind of roll the patient so you're coating all of the bladder wall with the contrast and then the last one is a retrograde urethrogram so essentially with these patients you have urinary catheter like withdrawn to basically the the distal end of the Um, urethra or like the distal end of the penis and then you inject contrast into the urethra which then goes up through the urethra and into the bladder Um, and I know you mentioned this in your strangulary episode but um, these these are particularly useful in these guys to detect if there's a urethral tear so if you've had um, cats who have been really really hard to catheterize and we've been struggling to get a catheter in these guys sometimes an iatrogenic tear can happen um, and your retrogrades are really what you want to um, to use to identify those yeah or you've got like the the stone that you know as you're as you're pushing your catheter in just like rakes along yeah. the yeah not fun So ultrasound is the other kind of main diagnostic imaging tool that we use in these patients. And we will use this to look at bladder size. Um, Potentially, we we will tend to do this in our block cats rather than actually having to palpate the abdomen because they're so painful. If you just put the probe on gently uh, without kind of poking it in too hard, you can get a better kind of assessment of the bladder without you having to do anything, which is going to hurt them too much. Um, ultrasound also allows us to look at the bladder lining, measure the thickness, and also allows us to look at the upper urinary tract in more detail to evaluate if there are any nephroliths or ureteroliths present. And then in terms of other procedures for these guys, potentially biopsies if you have um, like a urinary tract neoplasia, um, but this is a much less common cause of um, fluted, so I'm not going to focus on it really in this episode. Yeah, I feel like it's a whole other episode onto itself. Cool. So then in terms of treatment, there are a number of um, specific different treatments that we will use depending on the exact cause of the fluted. So for example, if you have a bacterial cystitis or a UTI patient, an appropriate antibiotic. Um, Again, I'll try not to get on a soapbox, but making sure that the urine has been cultured and that the antibiotic you're selecting 
is effective against the bacteria that's present. So then if you have an obstructed patient, obviously we're going to have to perform emergency relief of that obstruction. So one tip I would have for these guys is think about the catheter type that you're using when you're unblocking your cats. Ideally, we want to use one that is suitable both for unblocking and also for indwelling use if we are leaving a catheter in situ. So with these guys, we have different catheters which are more indicated for indwelling use and different catheters which are more rigid, which are generally used for just unblocking the patient and then being removed again. So in my practice, we use um, one by Myla, which is kind of a one-step system which you can use to unblock the patient, but it's also quite soft. So you can then kind of leave it in afterwards and they're, they're quite comfortable. Whereas using a more rigid one generally will cause more um, bladder and urethral inflammation, which can then become more painful and more irritating for these guys long-term. The Mylas so, usually have a stylet as well, right? Yeah. The one, yeah. Yeah. Um, like the flushing stylet and they have like a yellow kind of plug that you have to tie down really tight to the catheter as well as suturing it to the prep, to the um, prep use. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So in addition to relieving the obstruction, our treatment is going to be Things like appropriate fluid therapy, making sure we are correcting acid base or electrolyte abnormalities. Um, and with these, it's really important to consider that after we've unblocked these cats, generally we will get increased losses of fluid and electrolytes due to post-obstructive diuresis. So it's really important to keep an eye on our electrolytes, acid base balance and fluid balance after the obstruction has been relieved, uh, making sure that we're keeping on top of any fluid deficit and giving things like potassium supplementation where it's needed. We also want to provide appropriate analgesia to these patients and regular pain assessment. And then if um, we have any other specific treatments to start for things like um, muscle spasm and things, then add those in. But we'll talk about those a bit later on. And then antibiotics only if it's necessary. Um, and then if you have left your urinary catheter indwelling, then appropriate catheter management. So in terms of urinary catheter care, I think, Jordan, hopefully you'll appreciate it this bit very much so i'm yeah. so happy you're touching on this <laughs> like i'm gonna get on jordan's soapbox right up there with her exactly um, so, making sure that you are always wearing gloves whenever you are handling a urinary catheter collection system or line and if you're placing them then wearing sterile gloves making sure that you're emptying the urine bag at least once every four hours and i prefer also whilst doing that to also wipe over the lines and the catheter and also clean the catheter site with a dilute chlorhexidine solution or iodine solution at the same time as emptying the bag never leave the urinary catheter open-ended in these patients always use a closed system to uh, minimize any kind of ascending infection and avoid disconnecting the system from the urinary catheter unless you absolutely have to it's also really important whenever a patient has urinary catheter in not to give any kind of prophylactic antibiotics because we will increase our risk of getting a resistant UTI in these patients. So what you want to do instead is wait until the catheter has been removed. At that point, take a cysto sample to submit for culture. And then if you have a UTI based on those culture results, treat at that point, but don't give antibiotics routinely because a catheter is in. In terms of treatment as well for our obstructed guys, if the uh, obstruction has been in for quite some time then we may well have acute kidney injury as we've said and that will require its own specific treatment i'm not going to go into this because it has been very well covered in episode 39 with the acute renal failure and um, so make sure you listen to that one to get all your info on that 
And then I did also want to touch on perineal urethrostomy. This is kind of a salvage procedure and there's only certain times when we, when we would do it in our blocked cats. So potentially in cats who cannot be catheterized or patients who have had repeated obstructions, but we wouldn't routinely um, perform a PU on kind of all of our blocked cats. So for example, my cat had a PU the first time he ever obstructed, but he had a massive stone which was in the distal penis. And as soon as we unblocked it, uh, unblocked him and removed the catheter like three hours later he just immediately reobstructed in the same place and because he makes loads of stones anyway we just went straight for a PU at that point because if it didn't happen then it was going to happen like at some point later on in time but generally this is kind of a last ditch attempt in these patients it's also really important to consider that it's not without risk and things like UTIs and urethral strictures can occur after a PU and also the first couple of weeks of aftercare is quite hard going for a stressful cat with lower urinary tract disease. And I speak from experience on that one. So generally these guys will need to have cage rest for a period of time. For the first two weeks, they can't have any cat litter while the sutures heal. They generally have to have quite a big Elizabethan collar on, and it's normally like a big rigid plastic one. So it's, it's quite an ordeal for what is already a stressful cat to go through in these patients. But nevertheless, yeah. sometimes it is our only option. I was going to say, and the other big thing is, is client communication with that. Um, yeah. we, we had one, um, that the owners didn't have an appropriate Elizabethan collar on and mm. they, um, started licking and actually reobstructed because of wow. just not appropriate yeah. care. Um, and that's something that clients need to be aware of. Like, yes, your risk of obstructing is way lower, but that doesn't mean that it's not never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so they do need to follow like the strict protocols post surgery and everything. So. Yeah. So regardless of whether you have an obstructed or a non-obstructed patient, we all need to put in medical management strategies to prevent the signs from recurring. So this is really our kind of FIC treatment for these guys. And it should be a multimodal approach where we're looking at behavior and medication as well as adjusting the diet if we need to. So firstly, looking at medications, generally for simple FIC cases, we don't necessarily need to reach for these, but if we have obstructive patients, patients with other causes of fluted or patients that have like severe recurrent or chronic episodes of FIC, we need to think about them. So these would include gag replacers. So these replenish that depleted gag layer that lines the bladder. So these generally are glucosamine and kind of hyaluronic acid uh, containing medications. Some of them also contain L-tryptophan, which is a serotonin precursor and is useful in these guys to help minimize stress. And we could either give these orally as a supplement, um, but I did find, we don't use it in the UK, but in the US, I found that there's an injectable form which can be instilled directly into the bladder. Yeah, our um, surgeon uses this. Yeah, the ACIST. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, but it's not something I've ever heard of. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, we had, he had a, I don't think I've ever heard of it. I, as, uh, my surgeon's the only one I've ever known to do it. He uses, um, we call it ACIST into the bladder, but he uses polyglycan. Oh, cool. Okay, well, I've heard of polyglycan, but I don't think I've ever used it. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. mm, cool. Um, and then analgesia for these guys is obviously a key part of treatment. We want to reduce that inflammation in the bladder um, and obviously prevent the patient from being in pain. Also minimize any spasm because pain will increase the risk of urethral spasm from, uh, from recurring and minimize any stress. So usually we will use um, opioids initially in the hospital, especially obviously in an obstructed patient. 
NSAIDs are beneficial in these guys longer term to relieve that bladder inflammation. Generally, we will get our clients to kind of continue these for a while at home, but we can only start these when we're happy that the patient's kidney function is normal. So make sure you're checking bloods and there's no azotemia before these are prescribed. And then lots of other medications have been used in fluted patients. And these include kind of antispasmodics. So these are our kind of muscle relaxants. And so prazosin, as we said earlier, would be one of these. And this is the smooth muscle Yay. relaxant. So we were all right. Yes, right. Um, and also dantrolene is a skeletal muscle relaxant. This is one that I've, I think I used to use a lot, but it's really not been being used as much recently, I find, um, in our clinics. We generally tend to just use prazosin. Um, but these can be useful in our obstructed patients to help relieve that spasm. But there isn't actually any evidence to suggest that they are beneficial in cats that have FIC without obstruction. Yeah, that then, makes sense because it's not going to help with the inflammatory yeah. part. It's just... It's just the spasm, the spasm. Of, the, of the muscle. Yeah. So then dietary adjustments for these guys. The biggest one is increasing water intake. This is actually the most important non-behavioral factor in FIC because we're making the urine more dilute. So by making the urine more dilute, we are reducing the opportunity for that neurogenic inflammation to occur of the bladder. And we're really aiming with these guys to have a specific gravity less than 1035. Because we want to increase water intake, we want to try and get these patients onto a wet diet and then also provide other techniques for increasing water intake, all the usual stuff, drinking fountains, different sources, also flavoring the water with certain kind of meat juices, different bowls, all of the usual. Getting a cat to drink water. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Such a pain. Mine only drinks out of a pint glass on the kitchen counter, which I'm really happy about, obviously, and a water fountain. And the tap. That's it. <laughs> uh, mine, yeah. I have a fountain that is only good for them for like a day and then it has to get cleaned. Otherwise, it's gross. Mm -hmm. um, they also are fans of the toilet. <laughs> and I'm like, really? <laughs> they don't like <gasps> the, the day-old water in the fountain, but they'll drink from the toilet. Yeah, I'm not okay. saying that I understand. <laughs> them, but, this is why cats yeah. and I don't mix. I'm like, you are too picky. <laughs> yeah. And, and straight from the faucet, my girl cat, especially being on pred right now, she's very demanding mm. to get up on the faucet. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yeah. So then in terms of diet for these patients, urinary acidifying diets are generally not required in an FIC cat, but as we've said before, patients with struvite, um, we, we would use an acidifying diet in these guys to help bring down that urinary pH. Calcia, uh, cats with calcium oxalate crystals will not benefit from a urinary acidifying diet because we can't dissolve those stones. So what we want to do with our um, FIC cats particularly is rather than focusing on resolving any crystal urea that could be present, we just want to increase the water intake. Um, and cats with FIC actually can have some crystals as a kind of normal finding in those patients. So we don't worry too much about crystals in a patient with FIC. And then alongside diet, we want to encourage weight loss and promote activity in these guys. If we do want to start like a weight loss diet or start a weight loss regime, we want to do this when the cat is back home, all of the urinary signs have resolved and they have returned to kind of normal. So we don't want to be starting any kind of prescription diets or weight loss regimes or anything while the cat's in the hospital in order to help minimize um, the risk of any kind of food aversion when they get home. Yeah, I think that's important to remember because I, I feel like 
my doctors a lot of times want to just start the food right away. And I'm like, no, 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 they're not feeling good. So let's not make them think that the food's not making them feel good. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an important thing to remember. Definitely. So then in addition to our medical therapy, we also need to look at the animal's environment and behavior. So we want to take steps to minimize stress both at home and during any visits to the clinic. So in the clinic, there are a number of different things we can do, which I'll just touch on. So this would be things like obviously minimizing the sight, sound and smell of dogs or other species in the clinic. Avoid cats kind of directly looking at each other in kennels. So either covering part of the kennel or filling your kennels in a way where the cats aren't opposite each other. Making sure that any resources you are providing the cat in clinic are similar to those that are used at home. So asking your clients what kind of bowls, litter trays, bedding the cats used to and providing this in hospital. Giving them somewhere to hide in the kennel so they can take themselves away if they're feeling stressed using the pheromone diffusers in clinic and at home, so like Feliway, and also looking at gentle handling, using fear-free principles. And if you have a cat who's hard to, ch- uh, hard to handle, looking at sedation early on in these patients so that we haven't got to resort to like forceful handling or things like cat muzzles or gauntlets or anything like that. Uh, the other thing that I like is using anxiolytics routinely in hospital, um, obviously prescribed by your vet. So I will have quite often have a chat with our guys when we have a bladder cat in and we will just routinely give them gabapentin while they're in clinic, like every eight hours, just at normal dose. And it really, really helps just take the edge off and chill them out and keep them kind of happy in clinic. Gabapentin is amazing. I know, right? It's the best thing. It's my new favorite drug. Yeah, It's just a miracle, miracle worker. Gabapentin and trazodone are my favorites at the moment. Yes. (laughs) Um, I will also put some links, I'll share with you guys some links for the show notes, um, which are some great resources by the International Society of Feline Medicine in combination with the American Association of Feline Practitioners. They have loads of guidelines about feline handling, nursing care and the feline environment, which are really helpful both in the clinic and also um, for clients at home as well. In terms of hospitalisation, we want to keep it as short as possible uh, for these guys, obviously, because stress is such a big component we want to minimize stress and a visit to the clinic is obviously going to be quite stressful for them so depending on the severity of their signs and any obstruction obviously we want to keep them in as long as we need to for their own safety but then as soon as it's safe to get them out of the clinic get them out and back home to kind of get over the ordeal and return to normal The other thing that's really important with these guys is client communication. So our clients need to know that fluted is not generally like a simple fixed condition and they are going to need to do a lot in terms of ongoing monitoring and care. And generally they're going to have to make some sometimes pretty big changes at home to minimize stress in these guys. So our long-term goals are to reduce um, any recurrence of episodes by providing our cats with an appropriate environment, minimizing stress and adjusting their diet. And for us, as technicians and nurses, we are really a key person in supporting the client through this. So the areas that we want to discuss with our clients include adjusting the environment and behavior. So looking at multi-cat household, 
where we're positioning our resources, making sure we've got enough of them. So as we said earlier, having the one per cat plus one rule and putting them um, in different areas so that we're not going to have conflict. So for example, one cat being able to guard one whole row of litter trays is going to stop your FIC cat from being able to access any litter tray and also avoiding putting them in busy areas of the home. So things like hallways near doors or windows. So just looking at where things are positioned and optimizing that as much as possible. In, in terms of litter trays, we want to make sure that we are providing our patients with appropriate litter trays to encourage their use and to avoid any stress associated with using them. So we want to make sure that the patient has a large tray that's filled deeply with the type of cat litter that they prefer to use. And we want to make sure that is in a quiet area of the home where the cat can go and pee in peace. We also want to make sure our clients know how to predict stressful events and make sure that they're preparing for those. So if we know they have something coming up, looking at ways they can prepare for those in advance to minimize the impact that event is going to have on the cat. So if it's a trip to the vets, getting the carrier out early, get giving the cat time to get used to it being there, spraying it with feel away so that it's not stressful to them. So just doing whatever you can to minimize the impact of stress. We also need our clients to increase water intake. So making sure we're giving them advice on how to do that um, and also giving them like a handout if you have one in your clinic of practical tips they can use to increase water intake at home. And we also wanna talk about how to switch diets if we need to. So making sure they do this gradually after the patient has got over their period of illness and is back to being healthy. And also how to administer medications if they're needed in a way which is gonna minimize stress. So looking at things like pill putty, if a cat will take treats and what medications you can hide in food rather than having to stress them out every day by pilling them. And then lastly, with these guys, we want to be talking to our clients about monitoring, what they should be looking for, um, and especially around any times that could be triggering and when they need to bring the patient back to the clinic. In terms of long-term goals, most of our FIC cases will resolve spontaneously within about three to seven days. We can avoid them recurring in most patients if appropriate changes have been made at home. A small number of these patients will have chronic or recurrent FIC, and it's these patients that we want to think about medical therapy more thoroughly. So this would be things like our gag replacers, and in extreme cases, potentially referral to a behaviorist may be required to optimize their home environment and look at behavioral modifying medications. I was going to say, and that, that I feel like is not just for the animal, but, but a lot for yeah. like training the owner on Absolutely. how to live with their cat <laughs> mm -hmm. for sure because really like we have to just work around them instead of expecting them to work around us which is generally what causes a lot of these stressful right. episodes yeah <laughs> uh, and then just to finish in terms of follow-up how often we will see these patients back for follow-up depends on the exact cause of the fluted. So repeat visits should be scheduled at appropriate intervals for things like rechecks and urine analysis, depending on the cause. So stones, urinary tract infections, we'll need to do repeat cystos and things in these guys to check whether we've still got those crystals, whether we've still got infection. In our FIC cats, these episodes are usually short and we don't need to do much in terms of in-clinic follow-up care. So if possible, veterinary nurses or technicians can follow up with these clients remotely. So either like via phone or email a few days afterwards and as necessary, just to check on how they're doing and then see if a consult is advised. That way we're minimizing visits to the vet and stressful, um, stressful periods for the cat.
And then lastly, the cautions that we want to think about in these guys is depending on the exact type of FLUTD we are seeing. So for our patients that are obstructed and have indwelling urinary catheters, we need to be aware there's a risk of ascending UTI, which can become resistant if we're giving antibiotics to these patients. So obviously, as we've said, managing those carefully. Risks of prolonged obstruction include post-renal azotemia and acute kidney injury. And then our PU patients have the risk of post-surgical complications, so strictures and urinary tract infections and repeat obstructions. And then a general caution regarding FIC is that, as we know, it's an ongoing disease which requires careful stress management in order to prevent further episodes. So we need to make sure our clients are aware of that so that those changes are put in place. Otherwise, we have the risk of it recurring. It's the tip of the week. Cool. So this week's tip of the week is uh, just a general one to consider the impact of stress in these patients, making sure that we are adjusting our approach in the clinic to minimize this and also look at potential opportunities to make changes at home, because as we know, this will make a massive difference to our patients. Yeah, I, I feel like this is such a behavioral thing and both people <laughs> and yeah, cats. For sure. Um, because I think we, I think like when you were going over the stuff for in clinic, I know that my work could definitely be better about supporting our, um, cats in general. Like we don't have a cat ward. I wish we had a cat ward. We don't. And so unfortunately like our dogs and our cats are in the same Mm -hmm. room and there's sometimes where I feel so horrible for these cats that have urinary catheters in, but there's like the barking dog that's recovering from like a TPLO Mm -hmm. or something like that. So, I mean, I, I feel like that is something that I think that's things that like our clinics can definitely benefit from is how can we make a difference for our patients um, and our clients? Cause I, you know, I don't want them to keep coming back in because they're having issues. So I think that's a great tip is um, trying to help with the stress. Yeah, definitely. Because I think as well, like in that situation, you, you know, if you have, if you know, you obviously don't have a separate cat ward and you, your cats and dogs are having to be in the same area. At least, you know, that, okay, that patient's more likely going to be even more stressed because of that situation. So then it gives you the opportunity to look at other ways you can kind of minimize the impact of that. So you can say, okay, right, fine. Yeah. I know that there's a, yep. there's a dog um, underneath this cat and the dog's being loud. So I, can I ask if the doctor's happy for me to give something to this cat to chill them out? Do, can I make sure that this patient has like a cardboard box to hide in so that they can take themselves away? So like, yeah. And I like, um, well, we sometimes will cover like one half yeah. of the cage. So like I'll put a towel on half of the door or sometimes the entire thing, if I don't need to stare at them sure. all the time, just because I feel like cats also feel like if they don't have space to hide, they're super yeah, stressed. For sure. Like my cat's like going under the bed and stuff like that to get away from the world. So you know, and that's when they're not feeling well, which is exactly why they're in yeah. the hospital. So, you know, just remembering they like to hide when they don't feel well. I think that's really yeah. important for us as, as technicians and nurses too, to, sure. to provide them a little bit of mental yeah. <laughs> health as yeah. well as medical exactly. health. And now for the question of the week. The question of the week this week is as 
techs and nurses in practice, do you have the opportunity to talk about things like behavior and environment with your pet parents of your fleeted cats? And if so, what kinds of things do you normally discuss with them? This is a good question. I and it's, and it's funny because I feel like since I've been out of general practice, I don't, I don't deal with as many fluted cats. Like I feel like mm-hmm. very much like ER deals with them and general practice, but in like in my particular internal medicine, we don't see a ton of, I mean, yes, we see the infections, like the chronic infections in the kidney cats, but we don't yeah. see a ton of like, um, the behavioral stuff as much. I feel like, mm. I don't know. It's, it's kind of weird. I feel like I definitely yeah. had more conversations about the behavioral when I was in general practice compared to like now being mm. specialty, which is weird. Yeah. I would think, yeah, I would think it'd be more, but that's super mm. interesting. Cause it's kind of the opposite for me. So, oh, wow. okay. but I think when I was in primary care, maybe behavior perhaps wasn't as big as big a focus as it perhaps could have been but I mean I was I haven't been in primary care for five years now. <laughs> I was gonna say it's definitely so, been longer for me I'm like oh, yeah oh, <laughs> um but my the FIC and the fluted cats that I see in practice generally are the more complicated ones oh, and sure. yeah because they were being referred right. to us and right but I think comorbidities that you're like oh okay how do we deal yeah, with all this <laughs> yeah great winning combination of various things yeah, exactly um but I think that because I have worked with because my the medic who I mentioned earlier who wrote the book literally on this that I used for the show notes is so kind of feline person and mm. urinary tract is kind of one of her special interests yeah I think we see a lot more of it because people generally will refer yeah, them to her. And then because she yep. gets me to do so much with the clients in terms of the behavior and things, I end up having a lot more of those conversations than I used to have. That definitely makes sense. Duh, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Which is cool. Yeah. That's, I think it's really cool. I can't wait to check out um, the resources that you had too. Cause I feel like there's so many good resources. Cause unfortunately it is a huge issue for cats. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I love all the resources you have in here, by the way. And we'll definitely, oh, Jordan, um, we'll, we'll definitely link to this. So cool. I, yeah. Yay. <laughs> so um, one resource I did want to mention specifically is the International Cat Care website. So these guys are a charity that I do some volunteering um, work with on the kind of more veterinary medical side rather than the client oh, side. Nice. But they have tons of information on their website and it's all written by either like feline specialists or feline behaviorists and it's aimed at clients Mm. so it's really really good to send clients to but it's also really really useful for us to look at because it kind of tells us what we should be advising our clients about in a way that they understand oh nice and so it's a really really great resource and I took some of the information about the behavioral stuff about FIC from their website actually so it's a good resource to check out perfect yeah I feel like having those resources in your back pocket you know (laughs) that's that's yeah that's huge especially if it's something that you can send a client to I mean that's that's pretty impressive because sometimes trying to find um appropriate things for clients is hard right you yeah. don't want it to be super medical techie, right? But mm-hmm. you don't want it to be so simple that it doesn't make sense. So that's that's cool. Yay. Yeah. Nice. 
Yay. Cool. Perfect. I am amazed at the amount of information that Laura just like dropped on us. <laughs> I know this is such a good episode and your show notes. I'm going to like really steal so I can, yeah, I'm going to share them at some point too, because this is now the way I'm going to lay out my show notes. So (laughs) I very, very much appreciate the work that you put into it. And I appreciate you being on our show. I really, really loved it. So thank you guys for inviting me. I had a great time. Thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. We may have to see if we can talk her into doing it again. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, everybody, Uh thank you so much for listening. And thank you, Laura, for being on the show. And um, we can't wait to chat again. So, Thanks, guys. Bye, Laura. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.